A very warm welcome to the latest episode of My Middle East, Embrace the Middle East's very own podcast series. I'm Tim Livesey, CEO of Embrace the Middle East, the UK development charity, and I'm hosting this series. Through conversations with people who really know and understand the Middle East, we want to get behind the headlines to explore the real challenges and the everyday realities of life in this complex, beautiful, and sometimes troubled part of the world. My guest today is Nadia Huri. And Nadia is joining us from, from Beirut and very specifically the center where she works, which is called Tahadi. So welcome, Nadia. Thank you, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. Partly because there's just a possibility because uh, you're in a very busy center and there may be background noises. So just could you just describe the physical environment that you're working in and and uh, and the work that Tahadi does and the people with whom you are working? Sure, uh, absolutely. So we work in one particular neighborhood, a neighborhood in the southern side of Beirut. We've been working in this neighborhood since the mid-90s with a real focus on being grounded in one geographic area. Uh, it's an informal settlement called Hayl Gharbi, which means the western neighborhood. And so we try to work with families that are coming to this very impoverished area looking for mainly cheap housing. Our, com our families are very diverse in their background and their skill sets, but what's kind of this common factor is unfortunately uh, the struggle economically. And so as Tahadi centers, we try to provide education, healthcare, uh, social support, and some also skills training. So that's why you might hear a lot of noise. There might be some kids running by or somebody working in some of the factories nearby. But at that, that's really, in a nutshell, Tahadi's aim is to support families who are struggling economically in Beirut. I mean, I've had the privilege of visiting the neighborhood in which you work, Nadia. I think it's possible, uh, dare I say, that, that because this is, you're used to this place, that you may be underplaying it in the sense that I, I'm pretty sure our listeners, if, if they were transported to the community right now, they, they would be pretty shocked. What would be, you know, if you kind of took all the, the families in the neighborhood that you're that you're working with and you 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 lumped together their their income and you divided by the number of families per month, what kind of income are these families living on realistically? You know, I've never been asked that question quite that way. Reflecting on it quickly, I don't think it would be more than a than a hundred or hundred fifty dollars uh, per month, but that's really a very quick answer. And these are families of at least five individuals. And so they're well below the, the national poverty line, of, which is about three and a half dollars per person per day in Lebanon. Lebanon is an expensive country. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a very cheap place. A lot of our products are imported. Our infrastructure is very poor. We have to buy electricity from pri private providers. We need to buy water also from private providers that's not available by the government. And so the cost of living in Lebanon is high. And so these families living on such a small amount is very, very, very meager. We have seen this situation worsen with the economic crisis that Lebanon has been facing for the last two and a half years about, uh, where we've had rapid, rapid inflation. And so in the area where Tahadi works, we're seeing uh, hunger. We didn't choose to see that before. And so unfortunately, the situation is getting worse. And the infrastructural challenges are becoming very, very real to us, given the recent cholera outbreak in Lebanon. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, Nadia. I mean, before 
maybe we could just touch on the cholera issue in uh, in two ways. Coming second to the very particular neighbourhood and the challenges of the neighbourhood, but just broadly speaking, can you just paint the picture? What's what's going on? What's what's happened? Where is the cholera, and and why has it arrived uh, in Lebanon at this time? To begin with, we haven't seen a case of cholera in Lebanon since the early 90s. So this is almost 30 years where we've been cholera free. So this is very shocking. People are not many, even young clinicians have never seen a cholera case. Do not. Uh, I have the general impression that people don't realize how dangerous, how infectious this disease is, not familiar with it. Uh, so what happened is that there was a cholera outbreak in eastern Syria uh, that's quickly spread into the water systems in Syria because it was a period of drought. And again, there was no functioning sewage system. And so you had less water and uh, you had this mix between uh, sewage and drinking water, unfortunately, and water that's used in irrigation. And so very quickly we saw the spread of cholera from one particular area in Syria to almost throughout the country uh, and uh, a large number of deaths. In Lebanon, we had our first cholera case, I would say, about three weeks ago. We had it in a border town, uh, which was kind of the, what we first predicted. But because of the very close connections between the countries, we, we rapidly saw it in uh, other areas. So it's not possible really to can, you know, uh, imagine that cholera will only stay in border areas because people are crossing between uh, Syria and Lebanon all the time and within different regions of Lebanon. So right now, as it stands, we have over 300 cases and 16 deaths. People in Lebanon have have experienced an awful lot in the last number of years, and, and we'll touch on some of those things, I'm sure, in the course of our conversation. But I just wondered, is the advent, as it were, of cholera, the arrival of cholera, has that really caused a big increase in people's anxiety? Or is it like so many things in Lebanon, people are sort of just sort of saying, oh, well, you know, here's, here's another thing and we, we crack on. What's the, how has it affected people's mentality? I would say it depends. So those that are a bit able to control uh, their access to water and have more ability to access medical care, it's a huge generalization, but I would say there's an othering of the risk. So it's not going to affect me and my family, it's going to be in other areas. And I don't think, for me, there's enough appreciation of how our water system is connected, it's collective, and how we're, there's so much interdependency and, and we can't always rely on this super privatization of services that exists in Lebanon. Eventually, this it's an infectious disease and it's going to spread if we don't do something at a more structural level. So for some, there's this othering. For some, um, it's, there's a big fear because I don't think they can handle one more thing. And so that's often the case for the families that we talk to at Tahadi, where it's just, oh my goodness, one more thing that could, God forbid, affect my child and cause harm in my household. And so there's a, it really depends on people's resources. Uh, on how much they're reacting. But also, I think overall people, as you said, are kind of at their limit at what they can uh, handle. And so it's almost too much to imagine that we have yet another <laughs> stressor to navigate. So how, how can the people who are most at risk, at least theoretically, how can they protect, how can they be protected? How can they protect themselves, Nadia? So there's two ways when you have contaminated water, which is the main risk of getting cholera is either through being in contact with somebody immediately close to you who has been infected or uh, in places where you have poor infrastructure, this contamination between sewage water and 
uh, household water happens, there's two ways in which you can control the contamination. The first is through boiling the water, uh, and the second is through chlorination. And I'm talking at the household level. At the more state level or municipal level, it would be through chlorinating and managing your water uh, source. So at Tahadi, because our household is an informal settlement, it's a shanty town, there's no, there's no running water. This is, doesn't exist. We have three sources of water, and then Tahadi, salty water from local wells, uh, some municipal water through tanks, and then buying water from the local stores. And so when we met with women, mo mothers in the community, we said, you know, there's this new risk of cholera. We, one option would be to boil this water. The other would be to add household bleach to the water to kill the bacteria. Unanimously, it was very, very moving, actually, to be in these focus groups. They all said it was impossible for them to boil water because of the cost of cooking fuel. It was very humbling to hear that. It was very real. I mean, that's the level of crisis that we're facing, that boiling water to, to drink, to give my kids safe water is not even remotely a possibility. You know, we did multiple focus groups and universally they said, no way. We took, you know, we took that information to heart and we really have been focusing on providing information about how to do correct chlorination of water at the household level. So what we have to do is we have to add two small drops of uh, household bleach to each liter of water that's used for drinking uh, or cooking. Wow. And have you been able to access the, the required uh, chlorine? Yes, thankfully we have. But I heard reports from our team uh, last week that a lot of households are saying, you know, when they see that our team is doing live demonstrations in the community, they're going out and walking into certain areas and saying, okay, this is how we chlorinate very much, very physically doing it in front of them. They participate in the chlorination process. Often when they're done, the mothers say, can you leave behind the chlorine bottle? So this is an indication that this is also maybe a challenge. And so we'll respond to that as best we can by uh, seeing if we do some safe distribution of chlorine, uh, chlorine or uh, vouchers, etc., to see what we can do. Generally, it's available in the market and relatively inexpensive. Nadia, I want to ask you two questions, if I may. The first is, which, which I should have started with, what does Tahadi mean? And then the second question, in the time that you've worked for Tahadi, what is the thing that's most inspired you or... Is there a moment where, you know, something happened and, and it, it, it brought it home to you why you do what I know to be wonderful but extremely challenging work? So Tahadi in Arabic means challenge. And so the founders of Tahadi, which are two exceptional and strong women, they chose this name because they really wanted to uh, work with the community to take on the challenge of poverty. And it's a very deep complex intergenerational intergenerational sorry challenge the longer i work in at the community level and with this extreme poverty the more com complex i realize it is and i'm often reminded of of gregory boyle's jesuit uh, father who works in inner city los angeles he says in one of his books that we should stand in awe of the poor because of all that they have to carry I'm a bit mixing, uh, it's not a word-for-word -word quotes, but really on a daily basis when I see the challenges, I feel that I'm in awe of how much uh, many families have to carry and how they do that with much courage and uh, and really dignity and grace. So that's that's the hadith, that's our challenge. In terms of working here, what I really appreciate of the organization is the, is the genuine heart to be of service to this community. You know, what you see is what you get. So we don't have another... Mission. Our mission is not to perpetuate our own organization, but really to be uh, walking with these families in each day with what it brings. 
and that's a that's a gift for those of us who work in this area. I mean, that's very profound, Nadia, particularly that point that the, the mission isn't to perpetuate yourselves, but to serve the community and whatever, as it were, whatever that means, um, because time doesn't stand still. And it seems that there's always a new challenge. What is it that nourishes you and your colleagues? Can you give us a sense of what it is that creates the capacity, the willingness, the desire to keep on keeping on? I think we're very privileged, Tim, to work directly in the community and to work for a very long time. We get to know families, we get to know their children, we get to see young people travel through life's journey. Uh, and there's there's a gift, there's an honor in, in building those relationships. And genuinely, it's a privilege to be able to, to have that richness in our work. Of course, it's challenging at times. You know, not every story is easy, but the, the power of relationships is, is very profound as a motivator to continue hard work. Nadia, let, let's talk a little bit about you and your background, because um, I know you didn't actually, you were not born in Lebanon. You speak, you know, perfect English. Can you just give us a sense of how on earth that all came about and what's what's been your journey? You know, from a very, very young age, I was drawn to doing some kind of work in, in the social sphere, you know, and... Um, I feel very grateful that I was kind of that was implanted in me, you know, for, from a young age, and um, so my studies led me to to uh, to that area. I did some studies in international development, some ongoing work in uh, public health, and then psychosocial support. I moved to Lebanon actually to join my husband, who was living here, and he's Lebanese, um, as uh, involved in theological work and also in social change uh, movements. And so uh, very quickly after I moved to Lebanon, I visited the Haddi and felt that I had been here before. It was strange that I felt this was really a place that was oddly familiar and very welcoming, despite uh, somewhat harsh neighborhood. And I've been here since then. So that's been about 15 years ago, uh, 15 years now. You mentioned uh, you, you done some study of international development. I wonder if you've got any reflections for, for, for the listeners about the whole concept of international development. How does that touch what you're about and the situation that Lebanon finds itself in? Do you ever feel that there's a disconnect or do you feel that through the work you have with the work you do with partners, do you feel a sense of connection with people in very different parts of the world who are living perhaps very different lives? You know, it's very humbling, actually, the, the amount of people that care about this very small neighborhood in Beirut that really support us in so many ways is very, very uh, inspiring, actually, and very humbling. You know, there's no way we could continue without these relationships. And so relationships are with the community, but also with a huge network of people around the globe that are saying, you know what, we care about these families. Um, and that's and we care about the Hadi and we care about this team. Um, and that is a huge source of support. Uh, I think the industry, you know, is becoming maybe too big, too complex sometimes. Um, but, you know, it's I'm not playing lip service. It's genuine. And that's why I really appreciate organizations like Embrace that are committed to um, keeping keeping a level of simplicity. Um, and so that allows the work to continue and also be led by those that are on the ground and respecting that in a, in a real way, but coming alongside. I think it's a beautiful model and it should continue. 
Really? Good, thank you. And um, just before we leave the Hattie and maybe go to a bigger picture to look at Lebanon more generally, I wonder, um, one of the things that struck me when I visited uh, back in, I think it was March, or I can't remember when it was, earlier this year, having not been able to travel uh, for two years because of COVID, um, is that, you know, Tahadi is growing all the time. Um, is, how, is, how is that? You know, despite all the challenges, somehow you're always able to think about the next step and take the next step. Um, can you just give us a sense of how that has felt from within the team as you work together and you look at where should we go next or what should we do next? How do things develop? Is it very organic? Is it very planned? What's it like? Um, I would love to say it's very organized and very planned, Tim, and that we have the you know we have a vision, a strategy, and everything is just you know very well mapped out. That's not the reality. <laughs> it's mainly it's much more organic. Uh, it's mainly seeing a need and persistent over you know some time and saying okay we can fill this gap. We don't feel we should like you know, for example we're trying to do more work with our uh, students who graduate from our education center, um, and so that became a very real need you know there needs to be more work for uh, our graduating youth and so we're starting a new youth center uh, to provide vocational training um, we also it's a very true but funny story somebody gave us some sewing machines and we thought what on earth are we going to do with these sewing machines so we looked at them for a few uh, few weeks and then we thought okay let's train some women how on sewing and that's a few years later we have a vibrant um, sewing workshop which has 25 women that has really helped 25 families navigate uh, very, very economically challenging days. And so it really started from a gift that we didn't know what to do with, and then became something um, I think, you know, that we're proud of and thankful for. And so it's it's quite organic. Um, we tried to be planned and tried to also, uh, to the extent possible, uh, incorporate very consciously the input of the community. We have a program called I Learn at Home uh, that was really suggested by women in the area. So our education center is focused on children that are out of school. These are children that for complex reasons are not in formal schooling. And so currently um, we're at well at capacity. We have no more space physically to accommodate more children. So a few years back, a woman from the community said, well, you know what, we're, we're available. We can, we can do our best to teach children that are not in school and have no space in your center their homes. And so our education team thought this was a great idea. And so now we have six women teaching over 100 children in their homes. Uh, every week they come uh, and receive uh, tutelage, if you want, or tutoring on how to teach the lesson in Arabic um, or math. And then they go and repeat that lesson to the children. Uh, and it's, it's, it's been you know, effective. I mean, these are often the poorest children, children that are unfortunately spending their days working whether at a car garage or collecting recyclables like plastic from very filthy garbage to, um, bins around the neighborhood uh, now they have a chance to learn it's a flexible program and so some of these children continue to work but they also benefit from getting um, some access to learning and so that's how the operates you know we try to the extent possible to um, to be responsive to need, but also be very open to what the community is telling us um, on how we can respond and how we can uh, walk with them. 
you're clearly it's a community-based organization. I mean, are you saying that in a way it's also community-inspired, that, that much of what you're able to do or the directions that you take are really being decided by the community rather than by you? To the extent possible. It's, it's, a, it's not a perfect model where I could say that's definitely happening uh, in all fronts, but it's a, it's a combination, it's a conversation um, that's ongoing. And I think our presence within the community really helps that to be very natural, very organic and very respectful, to be honest, because I, and, and it became very clear with the cholera response. I mean, very, very quickly, we heard them say there's no way we can boil water, which sounds like maybe a small thing, but if we had built our whole response on them boiling water, we would be completely in the wrong direction that is not is irrelevant. But we were right here on the ground and they clearly said, no, we're not going to, this is not feasible for us. So we could focus on another, another path. So again, I think it's the power of relationships, the power of being present in the community. Nadia, how, how, how does Tahadi try to make itself available to a wider audience? I'm thinking how easy it is for people in different parts of the world to look at, an, I mean, we can look at a Lebanon and we, we, we've heard the stories of how the economy has really suffered terribly in the last number of years. There was the explosion in the port in, 20, in August 2020 and so on. Lots of really, really challenging things. And yet what I hear and what I've been able to see and what I know to be the case is really inspiring stories of, of making the best out of not very much. Do you have a very active communications team? Are you making videos? How do, how do people, how can people tap into Tahadi from, from Toronto or from New York or from London? Um, well, if you're in town, visit us. That would be the best way to see the work, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but if not, we're active on social media. Um, we have a Facebook page, which is Tahadi Lebanon, also on Instagram. And we do, you know, the best of our ability, we try to share uh, pictures and small videos. We also have an annual report uh, where it's a good summary of, uh, of the work that's being done. And so I would say those are the three main uh, avenues to uh, follow the work more closely. We also try to do a drive at Christmas uh, to get jackets and winterization uh, materials for the households um, because it's very, very, very cold actually in the houses. There are shacks, you know, the houses are, are very poorly built. Often any scraps of material are used to build uh, these these shacks, I would say, uh, more than a building, and so they get very cold. And so, you know, that's one very practical way for people to be involved would be to uh, contribute to that winterization um, project. And not to detract from the situation you're describing, Nadia, but you know, maybe we could climb up that hill behind Beirut. I know, I think you live up up the hill, but even further on, can you describe to people who don't know? Uh, what it's like to uh, drive up the mountain uh, and then descend down to the Becca Valley and 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 to describe what that might feel like in the middle of winter. I mean, it's gorgeous. That's the thing. Lebanon is so is a beautiful country. I mean, we have access to the Mediterranean, then we have access to these gorgeous high hills. Um, but we also have families that are living in a tent in the middle of the snow, you know, and during the very difficult winter months. Um, without electricity. I mean, universally last year, there was almost no way for rich or poor to keep warm because there was a fuel crisis and so you couldn't turn on the generator, so you couldn't turn on electric heating, you know. Um, there was also a fuel crisis, so, you know, any kind of um, heat radiators that required fuel was very difficult. Um, but hopefully this year there'll be more access to more options, but for the very poor, 
the options are very, very limited and very expensive. And so you're in the beautiful Wichita Valley, gorgeous, but it's snowy and it's cold and it's wet and you're in a tent. And it's scary to think that in, on the, in the midst of that, you also have cholera. It's a, it's a challenge. I, I can't paint a rosy picture of that. And I guess, you know, because of the <clears throat> situation as regards electricity supply, I, my, my understanding is that typically there's two hours of electricity from the grid, i.e. publicly provided electricity a day, only two hours. After that, you're on your own. Because of the uh, expense of uh, diesel and petrol, even for some people, I think, going to work at the moment, they can't afford to get in the car and drive to work. So there are multiple problems which must make... Uh, the wind, the getting through the winter for some people this year again really quite frightening. What do you look forward to, Nadia? I mean, what does what what do the people you look you work with look forward to? Is it, are we going to see a different Lebanon in in a few years' time from the one that we might have known ten years ago? It's a big question, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's a big question. I don't I don't have a ready answer. I mean, to be honest, I think if we were going to see change, we would have seen it already because what we've been through in the last few years has been so uh, dramatic and so big i mean the blast alone was just mind-boggling the size of it the, the level of destruction the level of injustice is beyond what anybody can absorb and so to think that after this huge event we didn't see significant change makes me feel that we're in this for the long run and that this is going to be the status quo for hi Hi, Tim. Sorry, we lost our electricity. So ah, okay. Well, in that case, I uh, think you were. I think you were saying. I mean, it's kind of apposite that you should lose your uh, your your electricity connection. It just shows that this is this is what it's like. And you were talking about your uh, what the future might look like or might not look like. Yeah. So in Lebanon, it's never been very. You know, it's always been a country that's in turmoil, but not to the extent that we've experienced in the last few years with this rapid, rapid inflation. I mean, the cost of goods has increased tenfold, if not more. Historically, the response has always been piecemeal to challenges. So, you know, this little neighborhood will respond in this way. This family will support their 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 neighbors, etc. There's not like a more structural or state level reaction. But I, I'm a bit concerned because the level of crisis that we're in now, I don't think this piecemeal approach is realistic anymore. You know, unfortunately, I think the cholera outbreak is very illustrative of that. I mean, if it's in our water systems, it's in our water systems and all of us are, are at risk. Eventually, we need a collective um, response. Eventually, we need um, a collective identity. <laughs> Not to be too dramatic, but that's at the core of some of our struggles in Lebanon. I mean, just to perhaps accentuate the positive and a little bit, I, I, I remember my slight sense was the flip side of that is that, I mean, it's not to disagree at all. I mean, clearly there really is a problem in terms of the, you know, sustained public provision of services in Lebanon, a, a major, major problem. But uh, it was interesting when I was uh, saw you last, part of the conversation was also a sense in which, because that is the situation and and because people don't have trust in 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 politicians, which is not unique to Lebanon, there is also a sense that the only people we can really rely on is ourselves. And despite everything, there is a growing sense of social solidarity, even if absolutely, as you've just said, it's not it's not enough. That that isn't the ultimate sustainable answer to the problem. But is it true to say that nevertheless, 
you feel that, that people do feel that the only people who can get us out of this mess is ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's been always true in Lebanon between, you know, the civil war and then the different um, political crises and wars that have happened. So there's always been uh, a real strength. I'll, I'll tell you a story. And so it, my daughter, on her fifth birthday, we did it in a, her birthday in a public park. And being still relatively new to the country, I didn't think that, you know, a public park, doing a party in a public park the day before elections was risky. And <laughs> so we're about to blow out the candles, which was the highlight for this little five-year-old dressed with her wings, you know, as a like butterfly ballerina. So that moment arrives and all of a sudden there's this huge burst of live gunshot <sighs> right very, very close to us. All the mothers that were there and fathers, I thought they're going to freak out and they're going to be, you know, just, you know, yelling and screaming and they're going to get their kids and we're going to flee. That wasn't it at all, Tim. They were so calm. They insisted that we finish this birthday cake. I was like, are you sure she'll be fine? She doesn't need to <laughs> Absolutely said, no, this is her moment and she, we're not going to let anybody ruin it. As the, you know, it's really a lot of gunfire was happening in the background. They helped me like make sure that the candles uh, didn't blow out with the wind. Um, they helped us pack up and we all left calmly. And I think that was a, a really um, important moment as I got to know Lebanon and it's in its deepest way. When it's really when it's really bad, people are, are in uh, are together and they're really trying to create good child uh, childhood moments for their children. That's a beautiful story, Nadia, and and I think it's a wonderful place at which to to close our conversation. Thank you so very much. I I luckily you're not on screen, so I won't watch you getting embarrassed. <clears throat> I do have to say that story, my personal experience of Lebanon, my friendship with the Hadi and with yourself and Martin, your husband, is is a very, is something very special. And I know that there will be some who are listening who will also have had that experience. And I really hope that there will be some who are listening who haven't yet, but who will. Lebanon is a, a beautiful country, as you just said. It's going through a hard time, but boy, we have a lot to learn from you. And Nadia, I want to thank you very, very much for um, sharing a little bit about your Middle East with all of us today. Thank you, Tim. I'm very humbled and grateful for our friendship with Embrace and with you personally. So thank you so much for having me on today. And thank you for everyone who's taken the time to listen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Middle East podcast. To find the show notes as well as other episodes in the series, please go to the podcast section of our website, embraceme.org. And please consider taking a few moments to leave a review or to share the podcast link with a friend. Watch this space for upcoming episodes. 